Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. What a beautiful Lord's Day God has given us. And uh, I just uh, am excited to be here today. They say the early bird gets the worm, but around here the early bird got the bacon. And so thank you for coming early. I want to just second the motion that we heard. Uh, what a great time we had out there. Uh, great uh, music. I think I swallowed a couple gnats while I was singing there, but um, it was beautiful an insightful, challenging message from Brother Mike, and an amazing breakfast. Yes, thank everybody for making that possible. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, and we are in the final few messages on that. Today is, if my calculations are right, the 31st message. Our theme today, uh, we're going to take a little section in Matthew 7. Be absolutely sure of your salvation as self-deception is surprisingly so prevalent. A well-known attorney was musing on the prevalence of mistaken beliefs. Here is his quote. He said, after thousands of of depositions, and seeing people lie in ways that no one could possibly believe, he said, the concept just hit me of a quote I once heard. The human capacity for self-delusion is infinite. And having been in the people business for over half a century, I would have to agree it is nothing short of berserk. The self-contradiction and the willing deception that we humans too often live. Well-known Danish author in the early 1800s was a man by the name of Hans Christian Andersen. He wrote many books, but he's most well-known for his book on fairy tales. He told a famous folk tale known as the Emperor's New Clothes. You've heard the story, but those of you who haven't, or those of you who haven't heard it for a while, let me refresh your memory. Two swindlers arrive at the capital city of an emperor who spends lavishly on clothing at the expense of state matters. Posing as weavers, they offer to supply the emperor with magnificent clothes that happen to be invisible to those who are stupid or incompetent. The emperor hires them and sets up the looms, and they all go to work. A succession of officials, and then the emperor himself goes and checks their progress. Each looks and sees that the looms are empty, but pretends otherwise because they don't want to be thought a fool. 
Finally, the fraud weavers report the emperor's suit is finished. And so they mime dressing him, and off he sets in procession before the whole city. The townsfolk uncomfortably go along with the pretense, not wanting to appear inept or stupid, until a child blurts out, the emperor is wearing nothing at all. The people then realize they have been fooled. Well, the emperor, startled, continues the procession, walking more proudly than ever. <laughs> Today, we also have weavers that are swindlers, three of them, in fact, the world, the devil, and our flesh, and each has conspired to convince us we're all perfectly fine, all's good. We don't need the robe of Christ's righteousness. And although the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord has been putting forth a contrarian view of what really makes the right kind of life. He said there are two ways to do life. The broad way, the typical way, the way that sadly ends up in destruction is a way known as human righteousness, or we might say humanism. And it was on that road that all the false teachers of the day were on, the scribes, the Pharisees, as they were called. These purveyors of Christless Judaism were pushing people to go on this Broadway. Everybody's doing it. Go this way. On the other hand, the contrarian view and the other side was the narrow way. It was a way, however, that led to life, surprisingly so. These are the ones who cast themselves on the mercy of Christ. And because of that, God then imputed to them all the righteousness of Christ, the riches of God. They became spiritual billionaires the very moment they won the spiritual lottery when they got saved. Now, at this point in the message Jesus was preaching, you would think uh, that the people would uh, just say, yes, I'll take that gift. I will accept the mercy of God. I want the righteousness of God. I want all that. I'm so tired of all the pressure to live up to the expectations, all the junk, all the condemnation. I want the mercy and the grace of Jesus. That's what we would think. But surprisingly, Jesus said, the crazy thing is few do that. Few. So few. And many take the broad road. And I'm sure Jesus was incredulous and so are we. The problem was this, and that's really today's message. It was not only the false prophets that were pushing people that way, but it was the false professors, those who were self-deluded and were believing the lie. Jesus then winds up this part of the Sermon on the Mount with a heart-piercing application. Be careful. Be oh so careful. Because, my friend, you can be your own worst enemy. And so this morning, we're going to talk about this message that is coming to a very rapid and powerful climax. We're in the last few moments of this sermon, as it were, and I can sense the passion 
Jesus is preaching with. I hope you can too. Let's all bow for prayer. Father, I thank you for this message. I don't know why, Lord, but this message is sure. Just uh, got way down deep inside me this week. I'm thankful for it. Challenged, Lord, by the extra things that it required of me. But Lord, I'm grateful for the opportunity for sure. Now, Lord, this morning, would you meet with us? Oh, God. I want so much, each one in this room, to be able to take that beautiful robe of righteousness. Lord, help us not be walking around without any robe of holiness, but your robe, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 27 is actually one sermon, in a sense, one part of the sermon. It deals with self-deception, a willing delusion. First of all, what we'll see today is the delusion of just our mere words. Or it's good. Whatever we say, it's, it's fine. And then the delusion of intellectual knowledge, which the Lord willing, we'll address the next first day, next Sunday. And so this morning, let's uh, participate all in the public reading of God's Word. So let's go to Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. And let's read it together out loud, if you would, please. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils? And in thy name have done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now in this passage, I see three parts. And each verse, I think, represents one of those parts. First of all, an indisputable truth is being presented in verse 21. Now listen, if you will, please, to the sobering, even shocking words of Christ. Not everyone. Not everyone. Clearly, then, universal salvation is a total farce. Not everyone gets to go to heaven. They have the opportunity to, but sadly, not everyone avails themselves. Not everyone says, uh, that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. I can just see Jesus panning the crowd, slowly making eye contact with many of the people, young and old, male and female, rich and poor, and then there's a dramatic pause in the message. Jesus slowly, so that they get the full meaning of what he's saying, says, now I'm going to startle you right now, but I want you to listen. You need to know that many of you that are sitting here in the grass or over there on the rocks, or perhaps up there a little bit on the mountainside, I want you to know that many of you that are sitting here are not going to heaven. It's not because 
you haven't been invited, it's not because actually, it's not even because you're not a good person. In fact, from an earthly standpoint, you are a good person. You're pretty decent people, but you're missing something. You do not have a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, with me, the Savior. Now, a lot has changed in the intervening centuries since Jesus gave us those words on that Galilean hillside. And while many things have changed, many things have stayed the same, and in fact, only worse. I believe there's far less people, percentage-wise, that are on their way to heaven than there were then. All the deception of the world that has come is so prolific. And so the million-dollar question this morning is, and really always is, who gets to go to heaven? Who really has the right to go to heaven? That really is the ultimate question. Now, if you listen to our neighbors down the street here, they will say that the only people who get to go to heaven are those that are baptized. And at that, you have to be baptized in the name of Jesus only. And then maybe, if you hold out faithful, you'll make it. Others might say, well, you have to be part of the Seventh-day Adventist, and you certainly can't worship on Sunday. That's the mark of the beast. Our Catholic friends would demand that you follow these seven sacraments and then you could maybe go to heaven. And there might even be a few misguided people who suggest that you have to be part of the Baptist bride. And if you're part of that bride, then you get to go to heaven. But the question we want to know today is not what some denomination says or some prophet says. What I want to know is what does God actually say what is the way to get to heaven? Well, first of all, Jesus said, here's what's not sufficient. Before we say what is sufficient, let's find out what is not sufficient. First of all, formality. What is not sufficient for salvation? Formality. Not everyone that says. The word not indicates absolute negation, meaning not everyone. No way everybody gets to go through the pearly gates at the end of the day. Not everyone that says, Lord, Lord. In the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the Savior ten times. He is referred to as Master or Lord over 700 times. The word Lord, Lord, curios is the word absolute one in authority. So, Jesus said, even though you've gone beyond referring to me as a savior, and you actually understand the fact that I'm your master, your Lord too, even though you understand me as Lord, that still is not a guarantee that you're going to heaven. Because all of that could simply be surface knowledge and not a heart connection. English is a strange language. Jesus is called the Lord, but the English language is such that there's many contradictions. There's no butter in buttermilk. There's no eggs in eggplants. There's no ham in hamburgers. And there's no apples in pineapples, for sure. But the inconsistencies of language, whether it be English or whatever language, are no big deal. 
What is a big deal is inconsistencies and what we really mean by what we say. And so just because we say, Lord, Lord, I don't know that we really are saying that's exactly how we feel. A follower of Christ that makes him their Savior and their Lord, yes, that is the right answer. But Jesus warned it's very possible to have God's name in your mouth, but have rebellion in your hearts. Yes, Jesus is Lord, but a mere verbal acknowledgement of that is never enough to take us to heaven. In James chapter 2, that wonderful epistle, that practical epistle, the brother of our Lord, Brother James, reminded his hearers that it's not enough just to acknowledge Jesus' divinity or his lordship. Because, as he said in James chapter 2, verse 19, Believest thou that there is one God? You believe that Jesus is God? Well, you've done well. But that's not enough. Even the devils or the demons, demones is the Greek word there, even the demons believe. <laughs> they really believe in that. And they even tremble. They're affected by it. It's not a mere surface believing. I mean, they really are affected by it. But that doesn't really in any way mean that they have accepted Christ as their Savior. Mere formality doesn't cut it. Jesus in his final earthly hours in John chapter 13 allowed us a little sneak peek into a conversation he had with his disciples. As always, he was encouraging them into a deeper walk with the Lord. Look at John 13, verse 13. You call me Master and Lord, and you say well. You say it well. You got it right. For so I am. I am exactly what you say that I am. But it's very likely Judas was saying the very same thing. And yet while he called him Master and Lord, he wasn't saved. Whatever that interpret to mean, it's not sufficient for heaven. There are many of us who say things that really we're not thinking when we say them. For example, a very common thing that all of us say is, good morning. Good morning has actually been shortened from have a good morning. And today many people simply say, morning. You say, what's the point? Well, actually, uh, etymologists, those who study the language, tell us that the phrase good morning in the English language comes from the 1400s. They say it's probably a derivative of Danish or even partly German, it comes from the uh, word G-O-D-E, not sure how to pronounce it, Gode, more windy, not a whole lot unlike Guten uh, Morgen that the Germans say, but the point being, it actually is the word God morning. Good morning is actually God morning. And so in the English language, when people would greet each other originally, they were saying, may God be with you. In fact, goodbye is a contraction of the word, God be with you. And yet today, of course, we take the God off, the good off, and we just say morning or bye. But goodbye, good morning, is really saying, God bless you, God be with you. That's actually what we're saying. And yet, for the most part, very much so, most of us say, God be with you, or God morning, and yet have never really thought about that. 
My point is, it's very easy to say words without really meaning what they actually are. Maybe it's because we don't know, but then other times it's just because we simply say them. We need to keep in mind that Jesus was not talking to heretics here. He wasn't talking to apostates or for the most part, he wasn't even talking to those who were knowingly being a deceiver. He was talking to very religious people. And he was saying, folks, you're just great people that you would come here and sit here and listen to my sermon. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that. I'm, it's a wonderful thing. But the concern of my heart, the deep concern of my heart is you're not getting it. You're not getting it in your heart. It's just up here. It's just mere words. It's formalism. In 2 Timothy, Paul wrote to his young associate, Timothy, in the Lord. And he said, tell them this. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 5. He said, having a form. They have a form down, a form of godliness. But they deny the power there. They deny the relationship. In 2,000 years since Christ spoke this epic sermon, I believe it's worse than ever. Gallup continually does polls and often does polls concerning the religion of the world in America. Not too long ago, they, as they often do every year, I think they do, they ask about those that consider themselves to be born again. Or a more common phrase today is evangelical. Evangelical, meaning a gospel preaching church or gospel preaching person or gospel believing person. How many are born again? And the most recent poll said that 42% of Americans say they are born again. 42% of Americans say they're born again. Well, I, I would sure wish that was true. But I must tell you, I just don't feel like that squares with Scripture whatsoever. Because Jesus said few. Really get it. Really get the sense of what it is. To them it's mere form, it's formality. What is sufficient for salvation? First of all, formality doesn't cut it, and then sincerity doesn't cut it. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord. By the way, the word saith, saith is in the continual sense, meaning they keep saying it. They keep saying, Lord, Lord, Lord. I mean, it's just not a one-time thing. They continually say it. They are deep in their feelings. We all know it's very easy to be earnest about religion and come up short. People can be sincere and yet sincerely wrong. We all know the example of the warped view of some followers of Muhammad. Some, not just radicalized men, but even precious little children and women who willingly offer themselves as a suicide bomber in order in their crazy concept to advance Islam. They are the ultimate insincerity in that sense. Wrong and sad and tragic and deceived. And yet they're sincere, very much so. Sincerity then is not a valid test of truth. Paul pled with the church in Corinth in verse, Corinthians 13 and verse 3. He said, even though I would bestow all of my goods to feed the poor, I give away everything I ever had to feed the poor. That's a good thing, I guess. I mean, it's 
Certainly a wonderful thing to those that are getting it. And though I were to give my body to be burned for the cause, if I have not charity, it proffers me nothing. The Apostle Paul was simply saying, you don't get any brownie points for these heroic acts of uh, dedication. In fact, he goes on to say in those same verses there, he said, frankly, it can be nothing more than a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Those of you who've heard this may remember, a person might be lucky enough to get a golden ticket pass to Willy Wonka's fictitious golden factory. But there are no golden passes to heaven. You must have something more than that chocolate pass. You have to have the crimson ticket of Christ's blood. And that's what we're talking about here this morning. What is not sufficient now? What is sufficient? What is acceptable to God? Well, first of all, God's will, as the verse says. Verse 21, God's will in the gospel. Not everyone that hath said to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. So the question we might ask ourselves is, who does the will of the Father? Do Christians, real Christians, always do the will of the Father? Well, no. Sadly, I wish it was the way, but it doesn't always do that. Even real Christians don't always do the will of the Father. Now, uh, from time to time, they choose their own will, but it's not their normal pattern. It's been said that obedience is not a maker of genuine faith. It is only a marker of that faith. Let's go to Matthew 21 for a moment. And Jesus is talking about the parable of the two sons. Jesus has been rebuking the false teachers for being just talkers and not doers. And he says, there's two sons. One said he wasn't going to do it, but he ended up doing it. The other son said he would do it, but he didn't do it. He said, which of the two did the will of the father? The one saying or the one doing? And that's the point. Some are talkers, others are doers. And so what is the will of the Father? Well, the will of the Father, verse 31, he said, which of them twain, or which of the two, did the will of the Father? Verse 32, here is the will of the Father, that you repent and believe. So then what is really the will of the Father? Jesus said, just saying, Lord, Lord, that's not enough. You have to do the will of the Father. What is the will of the Father? Repenting, saying, I'm wrong, I've lied, I've broken God's law, I'm hateful, I've been immoral. Freely admitting, oh, Father God, I've broken your laws. The most basic will then of the Father is to believe the gospel. And so if I believe the death, burial, and resurrection as my hope for heaven, that is the will of the Father. Doing the will of the Father is accepting the gospel. That's what he's saying here. And so then, uh, if I've not accepted the will of the Father, if I've not accepted the gospel, then I'm not doing the will of the Father. The not only uh, sufficient for salvation is doing the gospel or obeying the gospel or accepting the gospel, it is also God's will in the globe, not only the gospel, but the globe. That is our lifestyle out in the world. It's not only the things that we're saying, but we're backing it up by what we're doing. 
As James said in James chapter 2, he said, It's good that you have faith, but faith without works is dead. Back to that parable in Matthew chapter 21. About the two sons, Jesus said in verse number 30, He said to those false teachers, He said, You are like the son who said, I go, but went not. Then the gospel is more about just stepping than it is simply saying. The Bible recognizes no faith is does not lead to true obedience. For example, one sign of stepping into the gospel, one sign of stepping into the will of God, doing the will of God, is not only believing but belonging, being in person, serving God. Do I love the assembling of God's people? Faith alone, sola fida is the Latin word. Yes, faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is not alone. And that's what Jesus is saying here. An indisputable truth is put out there. Now, secondly, an inadequate defense is being offered. Verse 22, excuses. Someone said that excuses will always be there for us, but not opportunities. Well said. Now, in verse 22, he begins with a very foreboding word. This is not a little problem. Look at verse 22. Many. Many. Now, I don't know if that means most, but even many is some crazy stuff when you think about it. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. And then they begin to give their reasoning. The Lord puts out very three very common and specific human vindications that in their mind would qualify them for heaven. And be honest with you, when I first read this, it almost sounded like a charismatic, an ad for charismatic meeting or something. But uh, not to saying that's what it especially is, but it sure sounds like that. Notice it says, many will say to me, Let's just clear the air here for a moment, Jesus said. Someday it's me that you're going to face, not just the law, but me, the Lord. You will say to me in that day. Now, will we face Jesus someday as a judge? Well, thank the Lord. If we have been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, then... Uh, he is our Savior, and we won't face Him as judge. He's already judged our sin. But for the lost, yes, that's exactly who they will face. Jesus clarified that in John chapter 5, verse 22. The Father actually judges no man, but has committed all judgment to Jesus, to the Son. Really? People say, oh, you should be more like Jesus. You shouldn't be so judgmental. Well, guess what? Jesus is the judge. Yes, Jesus came into the world to save, but he also came into the world to say some things. In eschatology, we know that day is called, it's called the great white throne judgment. It's found in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 15. And the Bible says that those books will be opened. For the lost, their name will not be there. They have repeatedly and ultimately and permanently rejected Christ. 
And that day they will then face the music, as they say. They will have to face the choice that they made. They say that the saying, face the music, came from Japan. Many years ago, a wealthy man demanded a place in the emperor's imperial orchestra. But he couldn't play a note. The conductor reluctantly agreed to let the rich man sit in the second row. He was given a flute, and then when the concert would begin, he would raise his instrument, pucker his lips, move his fingers, go all through the motions, but never made one sound. Well, this deception continued for a couple of years until a new conductor took over. Each of the musicians were told they would have to audition for their place in the orchestra. One by one, they performed, and then came the flutist's turn. He was so nervous and knew that he's going to be found out. He called in sick, and to no avail, the conductor insisted that he demonstrate his skill. Humbly, he had to confess he was a fake. He had to face the music. And the same is true with God. Nobody gets in, in a crowd. We all individually, that's why Jesus said it's a narrow gate. Basically, it is so narrow, it's down to one person. Nobody goes through as a family. Nobody goes through as a church. Nobody goes through by a denomination. You go through one at a time. We will face the music. And that's what God is saying here. Now, the first inadequate line of defense is prophecy. We have prophesied, they say. Well, that's not enough. It is very possible to be a preacher, to be a teacher, to write Christian books and still come up short. God, in a remarkable and mysterious way, put his word into different prophets. In fact, in the Old Testament, he even put his word into a backslidden prophet and did so in a very unique way. He filled Balaam's donkey's mouth. The donkey actually preached. It's possible to preach and not go to heaven. Donkeys don't go to heaven. Speaking of donkeys, decades ago now, I recall hearing a witty preacher was in a service. He was being introduced by his fellow pastor, and basically who proceeded to roast him, as pastors sometimes do. Well, when that other pastor got up, he said, Well, I guess I feel like one of those Philistines in Samson's day. I've been slain with the jawbone of a donkey. Well, anyway, um, you know, it is possible actually to, for donkeys to preach if God puts it in their mouth. But preaching or prophecy is no guaranteed earmark of authenticity. In the 17th century, a son of a famous English Baptist pastor, Benjamin Keach, came to America. His son... Elias Keach posed as an Orthodox minister so that he could have a profession. However, his plan backfired because while he was preaching on the gospel, he came under conviction and accepted Christ under his own preaching. <laughs> yes, even God can put the gospel in a donkey's mouth and in an unsaved preacher's mouth. Prophecy is no guarantee that we're going to heaven. Number two, power is no guarantee. We have cast out demons. You'd say possible to actually cast out demons with the power of demons? Yes. Strange enough, it's actually 
granted by the power of Almighty God. His name is El Shaddai, means Almighty One. You see, God blesses the truth of His Word no matter who uses it. For example, you know, there's much freedom in being debt-free, as Scripture says. Well, being debt-free, whether you're a lost person or a believer, really still benefits you. Those who use God's principles always get blessed regardless of their spiritual condition. You might recall Judas was a betrayer. He was, uh, he was a crook. <laughs> he was just a terrible guy. And yet God allowed him along with his other fellow colleagues, his disciples, to cast out demons. And yet he was actually called a son of perdition. And so the ability to have this deliverance ministry doesn't even make us a Christian. Preaching doesn't make us a Christian. Being a person who has this power to cast out demons. And then profession doesn't do it. Prophecy, power, profession. We have done many wonderful works. I mean, if I had the ability to go out there and lay hands on people and just about everybody I laid hands on had a divine healing experience, I'm telling you what, you'd reputation would go everywhere. But it's not healing that impresses God, it's holiness. God is concerned about our lifestyle. It's been said that grace will bring a man to heaven without working miracles, but working miracles will never bring a man to heaven without grace. I want you to notice that three different times these people said, in thy name, in thy name, in thy name. I mean, these people were all about God. They were all about even Jesus. In thy name. But it was mere words. When I was growing up, there were cleaners here and there. And these dry cleaners had a specific name that said one hour dry cleaning. That was called one hour dry cleaning. I heard about a fellow who went to one of those one hour dry cleaning, dropped off his suit, filling out the tag. He told the clerk, he said, now I need this in an hour. I've got an appointment. They said, oh, we can't give it to you in an hour. He said, why not? He said, well, it won't come till Thursday. He said, well, this is one hour dry cleaning. They said, oh, that's just a name. It's not what we do. And you know, the truth of the matter is, I think many of us, Christian is just the name of our business, not what we really do. An indisputable truth presented, an inadequate defense offered. And finally, number three, an inestimable rejection declared. Now, the seriousness of this last verse, honestly, will send shivers up and down your spine if you'll think deeply about it. And then, it's going to happen. It's not an if, it's just a then. It's going to happen. And then will I profess unto them. I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now, why would such a declaration be made? Because first of all, they were Christians in word only. I never knew you. I never knew you. Why were they rejected? Because of their nationality, because of their gender, because of their denomination? No, I never knew you. The Greek word there is ganasko. It is uh, used many times in Scripture. It describes knowledge, but more than just knowledge, it is knowledge that is acquired not just from teaching, but from experience. 
not just book learning, but by actually doing it. You know, sometimes we say, I'm, a, I'm not just a book learner, I'm an actual hands-on kind of person. That's what the word gnosko is. Sometimes in the New Testament, it's actually even used to describe marital intimacy. I never knew you. We didn't have that closest of close relationship. You know, DNA is a powerful and even strange thing. Today, there are DNA sites that you can put a little spit in a bottle and you can send it off and they will tell you your heritage, your very likely where you came from, and they will tell you relatives you never knew you had. I sent mine in and I've got relatives all over America. 2% person in Alabama, 10% person in Montana, and so forth. And some of them I actually know. I thought, oh, look at that. The unique thing about DNA is this, and by the way, very surprising things often happen when people send their DNA in. But the one thing about DNA is you can't lie. Man, you, you can't trick it. It's like virtually 100% certain. It's just no lying. DNA is something that's incontrovertible evidence. It is absolute. Jesus said, in that day, I will check your DNA. I'll check it. And we'll see. Do you? Have you been born from above? Have you been born again? Do you have the blood of God flowing in your veins? Or are you 100% human? Because the Bible says when a man gets saved, he becomes a partaker of the divine nature. DNA doesn't lie. My spiritual DNA won't lie. You'd say, oh my goodness, what? I never knew you? Yes. That's actually a comforting thing. Though dramatic, it's comforting in this sense. Because it says, I never knew you. It doesn't say, I did know you, but I got rid of you. I threw you out. I didn't like you anymore. Didn't like your attitude. Didn't like what you did on that day. You're gone. No, thank God, he never knew them. That's what he comforted the disciples with in John chapter 13, verse number 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. Aren't you glad about that verse? He loved them to the very end. Brother, sister, if you are part of that, you have that spiritual DNA, you have Jesus in your heart, and you love him, you have that gnosko, you have that intimacy, you know him, he knows you. Trust me, he will love you to the end. Jesus, the righteous judge, will look at the lost on that great white throne judgment and say, I never knew you. He didn't say, yeah, you were once saved, but now you're gone. He said, I never knew you. Thank God you cannot lose your salvation. It's always there if it's true. The first reason why this is such a shocking revelation is because uh, these were Christians by word only. But second of all, it was evidenced by the fact they were workers of iniquity. He said, I'll profess that I never knew them. 
Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now, the word iniquity is the word lawlessness. It is the Greek word anomia, uh, meaning no, nomos, meaning law. He said, I don't, he said, antinomians, these who believe that their feelings, their concepts, their intellectual abilities are far above God, they say, no law, no God, I don't want God's word, no. God may demand it, God may commend, but I don't recommend it at all. It says they work iniquity. They work it. Boy, they work it. They work it. They love it. They commit sin and enjoy it. I mean, they'll get drunk one night and come back to it the next day. Just love it. Go out and party and pick it up again. They love it. They work it, iniquity. A true believer... Not that way. Oh, no, they may fall into sin, but they don't work it. They don't love it. In fact, they hate it. They're grieved by it. They're smitten by it. They can't stand it. I've got to have fellowship back with my father. I can't stand being away from my father. I can't stand it. It's a big difference between a lost person and a saved person. One has a relationship with the father. The other hates the father because they're the law. They're the law. And they're anti-law. They're anti-nomians. Workers of iniquity don't obey because they have a zero appetite to. These words were found on the, as an engraving in the cathedral in Lübeck, Germany. And they echo, I think, the very sobering words of our Lord. There on the wall of that cathedral are these words, You call me master and obey me not. You call me light and see me not. You call me the way and walk me not. You call me life and live me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me fair and love me not. You call me rich and you ask me not. You call me eternal and you seek me not. If I condemn thee, blame me not. But I think the saddest parts of this verse is these words, three of them. Three words. Depart from me. Now, there have been times in my life, even as an adult, where I've been in some crazy thunderstorms. I mean, it's just, wow, Ooh, man, it, man, it's scary even. I mean, I don't know what it is about it, but these, your building just shakes, your windows rattle, and just, man, it practically throws you out of bed. I mean, thunder. Whew. I will tell you these three words, thunder, with a storm far greater than any you've ever been in. Depart from me. Now, I hesitate to push on this matter because, and honestly, that was one of the challenges I had with this passage. Knowing people like I know and knowing the message, how strong it is, there will be some who have such a tender heart to the Lord. I don't in any way, shape, or form want to create doubt in you. But friend, I must be honest with Scripture. I must be truthful and faithful as a pastor, as a shepherd. The the strange thing about a message like this is that those who may need it least feel the deepest affected and those who need it most pass it off like it means nothing. Do you have a relationship with Jesus that has changed your life? Does Jesus know you? He said, I will profess 
to everybody. You don't, it's just not going to be a private matter. Everybody will know. I didn't know you. I can almost in that day imagine somebody turning around and saying to someone close by, wait, you knew me. I was sitting in church. You saw me. You knew me. I was there. And yes, you will have to reply, I was. But the fact that I know you and the fact that I saw you in church doesn't mean anything. What really means something is, did Jesus know you? And in that day, there may be some, and I hate to even say it, but there may be even some who will say, Pastor, you knew me. You knew me. You saw me. And yes, I will say, yes, I did. But friend, I don't know your heart, but God does. Jesus said, I never knew you. Maybe that's why Paul so passionately told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, examine yourself. You better do this. By the way, that phrase is in that linear tense again. Examine, examine, just don't let it be a one-time thing. Whether you be in the faith, in Christ, prove, test, look deeply, know you not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, or you'll be a reprobate, you'll be rejected. If Christ is not really in you, you'll be rejected. Now this truth comes close to home. I must admit, when I read the verse that said, you can preach in his name and still not be a Christian. You can do miracles and still not be a Christian. You can cast out demons. And I must admit that many a time this week, I've gone to the Lord and said, Lord, and I know I'm a believer, and yet, I'll be frank with you, I just reassured myself. I, as that verse said, I examined myself. To me, the deepest examination is that of my private life. I love what Charles Spurgeon said on this matter. He said, you know, Jesus didn't say you can pray and still not be a Christian because praying is so, such an intimate thing you do on your own in private. Most of those things that were seen, they were all public. So what's your private life like? Do you have a sincere time with the Lord? I know you, you say you do. But look, folks, it's not a... Let's just cut to the thing here. I mean, come on now. It's not enough to just say it. Do you feel a connection with Jesus in private? Does He speak to you? Do you speak to Him? Do you sense Him? Do you... Have that intimacy with him. Yesterday morning, I was in my office for a bit, and I began to pray, and God just moved into the office. It was a sweet, beautiful confirmation, one that I delighted in, and I prayed deeply for several of you and for the church and for other things. But even after all these decades, I asked myself the question, I'm telling you one thing. I do not want to come to the end and have kidded myself the whole time. 
played games, did the things, and it wasn't true. One of our good men is Brian Burnett, a wonderful man, raised a good Christian young man, but he found himself in college, Bible college, and he was sitting there. The preacher was just dialing it straight and clear. And he began to say, what are you trusting? What are you trusting to get you there? Is it something you've done? Or is it Jesus? Is it grace? Or is it goodness? What is it? As he began to sit there, he said all of a sudden he just knew he was lost. He was lost. And of his own testimony, he there in Bible college put away the embarrassment of having to say I went to Bible college unsaved, but he made it sure. Now, if you'll allow me for a few moments, I'm going to press even a little bit deeper. Jesus said, depart from me. Have you ever been someplace so beautiful? You're just like, man, this is, this is amazing. Maybe in an alpine lake somewhere and just, oh, it's so beautiful. You smell the pine, the fresh, clear air. It's just a beautiful time. You're with someone you love, maybe a good friend or a, your husband or wife or your child or grandchild. You're with someone you love and the moment is just beautiful. But the best thing, and you probably even say it, you know, as much as I love being here, what I love most is being with you. And ultimately, friend, that is what it is, isn't it? It's about people. Oh, yes, heaven's going to be amazing. I mean, he describes it. It's just amazing. But I really don't think I'm going to get to heaven and say, wow, what a mansion. Man, look at those jewels. What's going to be most is that I see my Savior first of all. My best friend, Jesus, waiting for me. He there waiting for me. And so when Jesus says, depart from me, he wasn't saying, you'll no longer have your religion. You'll no longer have your creed or your philosophy. He said, do you realize that what you're saying is you will never have me? Ever. Ever. You will never have me. Me, the very one who went to the cross so that you could go to heaven. But oh no, you didn't want that. You wanted your parties and your drugs and your liquor and your sexcapades. You, that's what you wanted. You chose that over me. I came and died and I took the nails for you. You don't want me though, do you? You want what you want. Depart then from me. If that's what you want, depart from me. You will never again have my friendship and my relationship ever. That's it. Never a second chance. King Agrippa in Paul's day looked at him and said, almost, Paul, 
You persuade me to be a Christian. Almost. An almost Christian. Did everything, but he didn't make that final choice. My friend, don't make that choice. Bow the knee to God. It doesn't make any difference what anybody says, what anybody talks about. I don't care what philosophy, what liberal, conservative, it means nothing. You want a relationship with Jesus. You want that spiritual DNA. I don't care if you're five or you're 95. You need to know Jesus Christ. Bow the knee today. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Our worship team is going to come. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.